Okay, so here we are again. Peter Smagorinsky, thank you so much for uh, spending some time with me again. Good well, to see you. Yeah, here we are again. Uh -huh. um, so we've done a couple, a couple of these conversations, and yeah. those, those were both pretty much Vygotsky-centric, and I think today's will probably be a little bit less of that, um, although he'll probably creep up here and there. Um, things going well? Uh, yeah, um, as well as they can be. Well, the, the earth is heating, the economy is tanking, the people are dying. Uh, other than that, it's gone well. So how's the weather? How's the weather? That's a, well, we're, there's a hurricane uh, hitting the coast of Georgia. We're inland and not getting it too bad. But yeah. uh, uh, actually, we could use the rain. So I, I have these mixed feelings. I, I appreciate the rain but it comes at a cost to other people. Mm. And uh, so, uh, but there's little I can do about either. Yeah, that's how things tend to go. And uh, so I, I assume your landscaping is, is doing well? Well, it could use the rain. Okay. Uh, uh, yeah, that's as if anyone who's been on, on these other conversations knows that that's my spiritual home, uh, it's my yard. Mm. And, I spent. I still spend an hour a day out there. Uh, this morning I was limbing trees. Uh, Great, and that's that's really healthy, especially during these months, being outside for at least thirty to sixty minutes a day. So I'm glad to hear oh, that. Yeah. Oh yeah. Um, this is going to be relevant right now. I'm just going to share something very briefly. Right. I, I won't. I won't take long. I, I know the last time I did. So here's just a handful of books that uh, that you wrote that I appreciated and found really valuable, particularly the one on the right, that blurry one. When I was uh, training to be a teacher, that gave me frameworks for really planning, and okay. planning was scary at that point in my career. Um, this next slide is really just for people to see. <laughs> you can't read it, but you've written quite a few books, or edited, or co-wrote, and mm -hmm. uh, to me, that's just like, that's wild. And here are a couple conversations that we've had uh, in the past, and I would urge anybody who enjoys this today to check these out as well. And those conversations were based on uh, a book you wrote a couple of years ago. Maybe it's eight now. Wow. 2011 now. Holy moly. And this is a really right, great you know, book. Anthony, we were both younger then, it looks yeah. like. I think we still look okay. We're doing all right. Um, the setting hasn't changed. Uh, that's right. I'm still in the same room with the same yeah. background. Yeah. Same art. Like it. Uh -huh. Well, no, there is there is one difference, and I'll okay. tell a story on myself. Um, if you look at the one on the top, um, you'll see behind me. Well, you mm -hmm. can't see it now. It was one. It was in the picture. You can't see it anymore because I changed. But yeah, I, I have to point out. You have to go back to that last. Slide. Sure, I will. Yeah. Um, so if if you look up in the upper right hand corner of the screen, you'll see what looks like a, a loop. Yes. That's, a, that's actually a, a, a wooden, I don't know if you call it a sculpture, or you know, it's some sort of artwork uh, from a, I can't, can't remember where it's from. That's actually the tail of a lizard, and mm -hmm. you have to go up to see the rest of the lizard. And I was being interviewed by an African-American woman, and I could see she was looking at, she was staring at this. Is that a noose? Oh man, this is Bubba Wallace territory. Right? Yeah, is that a noose? I went, no! 
No, it's a lizard. But I that day I took it down. Okay, all right. I you know it's just I it never occurred to me that someone would see that and see it. Yeah. When you look at it and you don't know you don't see the rest of it. Yeah, well, this is a this is a lesson in framing. It's a lesson yeah, in framing. Right. That's you know? right. Really, I mean, you 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 could choose sometimes what you put inside the frame and out, and isn't you know that's certainly a sign of the time. So that's for sure. Yeah, yeah. Well, this was five years ago, maybe. Yeah, yeah. So I, anyhow, that's uh, that's the main and perhaps only change in the background. Okay. Since you interviewed me eight years ago. Yeah, and then here is one last slide I wanted to show, and this is the first of I think I have only two questions for you today. Uh -huh. And my first question is, this is a new book of yours that I'm very much looking forward to. Um, I'm trying to get through some other reading first. Can you just talk a little bit about this book? And I put, I put an article next to it because mm -hmm. that was an influential article for me. Um, can you just talk uh, a little bit about the new book? Yeah, and uh, with respect to the article, that came out in the, around the turn of the century, maybe mm -hmm. 2003 or so. And I've actually updated that because I, I uh, have gotten away from the idea that there is a path even to follow. And that's one of the main themes mm -hmm. of this book. So the book is a, uh, an effort to take about 20 years of research on how people learn to teach. Mm -hmm. And uh, based on a number of articles and then essentially rewrite them with uh in hindsight mm. so the a, a number of the pieces have been published before but they don't look exactly the way they do now in fact they uh, you know i was able to combine cases to see how they look together it was a very uh very useful thing for me intellectually and i hope someone actually reads the book although it's so expensive mm. uh buying it is uh, i'd wait for the paperback but um, when, when might that be? I think it's a two-year lag, maybe. I could. Uh, I yeah. could. Okay. Uh, but the, what they do is they issue it in hardback first because it's mm -hmm. a library purchase. Uh, but what it does is delays the possibility that anyone's actually going to read it for a couple mm -hmm. of years because who goes to a library anymore? Yeah, that's that seems to be a system that is a little bit obsolete. Not not libraries, not at all, but just that 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 uh, sequencing. Yeah. Especially, especially now that so many people are living living online. Well, especially now. Yeah. Who's going to be in a those libraries or, or ghost towns now? Um, so I, I'll, I'll give an example of something that, um, of, of how the book is different from what I originally wrote. So there were, these were based on case studies I did with funded research from 1996 to 2001, I think. And I started writing articles out of it in 1999. Um, and because they take a while to do, and I had a lot of cases, I was working through these cases over close to a 20-year period. Mm. And so even though the data were from the same collection and the same era, the articles were you know, kind of parceled out every year or two over a 20-year period. Probably oh, wow. a dozen to 15 different articles. You know, you just can't write them all at once. And if you do case studies, they take to me, they take about a year to do. Uh, and then I did them with different graduate students. Mm. 
And so there wasn't a particularly systematic way of doing it. What I would do is if I had a, a, new, a new doctoral student who were who work with me for two years on these things, I would say, here are the, here are the cases I've got. Here's, the, here's, my, here's my data. Which one do you want to work on? And they'd pick, I didn't really care which one we did next. They're all, they're all interesting to me. And so what I would try to do is work as well as I could within the graduate students' interests. Um, and that gave them a little, I think, investment in the, in the work and in the topic. And so even though two of the uh, participants from the elementary education program at the University of Oklahoma, student taught in the same school at the same time, I analyzed their cases several years apart mm. and with different, um, actually one I just wrote on my own and the other I did with a different research, um, research partner, a PhD student. I'd have to go back and look and see who I did that one with. And so because I looked at them, I don't know, five, 10 years apart, I didn't look, I looked at them as discrete cases, right? Uh, rather than as part of a, as rather than something that could be bundled. And in doing it that way, I didn't see some things that in, when I looked at them together, jumped out at me and that I thought were very well worth um, thinking about and writing about. So the two cases, uh, one was a woman in her mid thirties who had two, she was a single mom with two kids. Um, and was a Native American. But if you, in Oklahoma, there are a lot of Native American people who don't have particularly you know, Indian sounding names. You know, her name wasn't Burning Thunder or anything like that. Mm -hmm. uh, she had an Anglo sounding name as many do. Uh, and also you can't, you can't always tell by the, by, by racial features, whether someone has a Native heritage. Sometimes I, you only find out when you talk to them, but they're, Lots and lots of people in Oklahoma who have native uh, heritage, as it used to be the Indian Territory. It was where the Andrew Jackson sent all the Indians from the Southeast on the Trail of Tears. So um, she she was one of the participants, and then this, and she's the one I did first. And I was very interested by the way she talked about her conflicts with the school, which was a very kind of crisply run school elementary school you if the lesson said we're going to run it from 9 to 9 17 that's how you, long you ran the lesson and you could see her mentor teacher always like with a minute to go in the segment preparing the next thing right and she was very good at working with us in this environment the mentor teacher not so much the student teacher um uh, penny we called her so she she was at odds with the whole question of time. And that's actually when I found, that's when she told me she was uh, Native American. I, we were talking one day, she said, you know, it was early November. And she said, um, I'm, I'd like to do something seasonal, but I'm not sure exactly what. And I said, wow, just do Thanksgiving. Every, you know, everyone loves Thanksgiving. And she said, I hate Thanksgiving. Mm. I'm an Indian, and I, oh, yeah, you know, it just 
hadn't quite registered. You know, thanks. I love Thanksgiving. It's a wonderful holiday if you're white and you've grown up under the our mythology. And I, it was pretty sobering to hear her tell why she didn't. And since then, I'm much more acquainted with the Native American perspective on Thanksgiving. Uh, it's not welcome. And so, at least, at least, yeah, at least from her perspective, from not her. across the board. Yeah, but yes. Well, among many. Right, it's, right, right. It's viewed as this kind of a, a symbol of the, of the colonialization of their people. Mm. So, um, but the but the real thing that kept coming up was how how uh, out of sync she was with the with the time management expectations of the school, and as I'm sure most people are aware now, the the neoliberal economic. Uh, uh, infiltration of schools does affect, you know, punctuality is very important in schools, things like that. If you're late for class, you get a, you know, blah, blah, blah. Uh, and it fits very well with Eurocentric um, values, uh, you know, notions of character and all these things. You know, we're responsible and punctual and punctuality comes up quite a bit. And, um, but she really resisted that. And so when during these reading lessons, if I ever watched her mentor teacher run one, she was always keeping the pace brisk. And so they they do a thing and she'd say, and eh, you know, ask some question. You know, they hold the book to their side and they read it upside mm -hmm. down. It's really impressive to watch these teachers who do this. I, you know, without almost without looking, they can they can really do this uh, reading upside down and conducting a discussion at the same time. But if six kids had their hands up, eh, 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 she'd call on two or three and then move along, right? Um, Penny, the student teacher, she'd call on kids until there were no hands up, even if it ran the lesson 10 minutes over, because she was in the, in the moment. And um, some of the reading I've done recently makes a distinction between clock time and event time. And I think that these are the, this, I'm using one set of terms. There are a number of people have noticed this and not all use the same terms, but I'll just use these for today. So clock time and event time. So clock time is what the, the mentor teacher was practicing. You know, that it says nine o'clock and so you do this and that's how I'm built. Mm. I'm always early. I'm the most punctual person on earth. I'm very comfortable with that. But event time is you're focused on the event itself and not worried about when it's supposed to end. So you're in the, you're much more in the moment, mm -hmm. I guess is one way of putting it. And those have been um, associated with kind of European ways of being and indigenous ways of being. It's a very consistent thing. You know, you, you hear about Latin time and CP time and all these different times that are tied to a cultural heritage that don't view the clock as the driver of what you do at that moment. They view the, ex the immediate experience, the event, as what you should be focused on. And so being late only means you were spending more time with someone else. Mm. And it's not, uh, it's, not a, it's not a violation. So Several years later, and so that was the that was the, the the article's called "Time to Teach." It was really about this time, this different conception of time. Uh, a mismatch, yeah. Big mismatch between her 
Um, but it was pretty clearly tied to culture, and she would talk about that. She'd say, ah, um, when I'm at home, on a, I'm on Indian time. No two clocks in my house tell the same time. Mm. It's, there, it's all approximate. So another participant, and she was your down the fairway, you know, lovely uh, young woman wanting to teach elementary school. And um, was she, she chafed under a number of things under her mentor teacher who really kept her under her heel. Mm. And I observed this and it was kind of painful at times. But she would always, like Penny would say, I can't deal with this. You know, this is, this is a, very upsetting to me. You know, it was deeply um, ill, at, she was deeply ill at ease with the way the school ran on this time stuff. And she and her mentor teacher had a great relationship. They really had a lot of affection for each other. They had a lot of respect for each other. They got along great. But this time thing was a was a chasm. Yeah. And the other one, she had a real hard time with her mentor teacher, but she was able to put up with it. And it was kind of, well, this will be over. And now I'll go get my teaching job and blah, 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 blah. Right. And um, and so the tension there was between uh, her, all the all these all these cases have these very interesting tensions in them. Um, and the tension there was between the, the, uh, the constructivist orientation of the student teacher and the mimetic style of the mentor teacher. In other words, she expected everyone to, like everything on the wall was formalist and uh, a model. And their kids were not surrounded by their own work, but they were surrounded by, you know, what how to do things correctly. Mm -hmm. And that was the emphasis of the whole thing. And she, and I, I, I remember her real name, but I forget the pseudonym we used. Uh, she ultimately was able to shrug it off though. And so the more I thought, and so the next year she got a job and had a teaching career. I'm not in touch with her anymore, but she was on her way um, to teaching. And Penny never took, took a job. She couldn't do it. Uh, the next year, I know she started a graduate program, a master's program, but I, she never, I was never able to locate her on any website under the name that she had when she was a student there. And I doubt if she changed her name. So I, I, I thought this was pretty interesting. And I started doing, so you, you read about, well, we need more teachers of color, right? Every, all these administrators are saying, well, we need more teachers of color. What they're not saying is, how can we change how the institution works so that people of color actually want to work here? Um, it would say, and I, I, I began thinking about the deep structure of school, and that's the term that I mm. throughout the book. Schools have a deep structure that make it a much more accommodating and com comfortable place for one type of teacher, usually white, you know, what we call the white middle class teacher, and a place where other people don't feel at home. They don't feel that their values are built into how the school operates. You know, the, 
if you if you're if you're if you're oriented to event time and everything's running on clock time, mm. you're always going to be frustrated. Always going to be frustrated. How, how how would you recommend a, a school that that sees very little value in abandoning clock time, but wants to accommodate a little more flexibility for event time? And we could and we could ex, we could uh, multiply this analogy all the way down. Um, how would you recommend that they move forward? Well, first of all, you have to recognize that that's a problem and the people don't. And so, well, we need more black teachers, but they're not doing anything to change the school so that black people will want to teach. Same thing, one of the things I learned in uh, specifically looking at the Native American thing, because that's another thing, well, we need more Native American teachers. Um, the percentage of Native American people in the teaching force is actually clustered with several other categories and together they comprise something like 0.04 or like a half of a percentage of one percentage point of the entire teaching population. And that's when you put Native Americans in with other people, kind of mm. a, a catch-all category. And you can't just sit there and think, well, damn, we need more of them. If you're not making it a place they want to be. And I suspect, by the way, that a lot of those are actually on reservation schools, not in mainstream schools. I can't, I, the whole time I was in Oklahoma, I met very few Native American educators and that's the most populous Native American state. There are more Native Americans in a, in Oklahoma, which has a population total of like 3 million people, or at least it used to, it's probably bigger now. There are more there than there are in California or Texas. And there still aren't a whole lot of Native American teachers. Mm -hmm. And so I, if you are just trying to change the color of a workforce, you're looking at the wrong thing. You're not looking at the school culture and what I, this, uh, this thing that I was calling the, what I've called the deep structure that builds in a white way of doing things. You know, and white is a you know too broad a category, but by and large a Eurocentric uh, uh, capitalist style neoliberal school structure is something that is much more comfortable to some than to others. And it's prohibitive in terms of people wanting to undertake careers in it if they never felt comfortable there as students. You know, there is a, um, I think they call it an identifier factor in school hiring and retention. The people who go into teaching like school as students and they tend to replicate it. But if you didn't like it, you're not likely to go into the business. And if the school, you know, there's there's a lot to be said about, you know, the curriculum being all about white people. That's true. Um, mm. and, and 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 you know, black and native and Latin kids not being able to see their people in it. But there's also this deep structure. You know, you think about kids who like there was a, a black wrestler who was disqualified by a referee who told me I had to cut his hair to wrestle because he had dreadlocks. And, I, and you may have seen this, Jamaica just 
decided that black kids can't wear dreadlocks in school. I thought, isn't that where they come from? Isn't that where dreads were? I, I always think of that as a Rastafarian uh, styling. So, so my my previous question was, what what recommendations might be offered to a school that would like to uh, be more uh, accommodating towards uh, event time, or you can yeah. multiply that towards any sort of like cultural mismatch, perhaps. I don't I don't feel comfortable with that term, cultural mismatch, but where there's a mismatch between somebody's, uh, I guess. Uh, comfortable way of doing things and then like the uh -huh. system's way of doing things that this the school does not want to abandon its formalities but still wants to make space so the first your first answer was like no it exists right no some of these differences exist yeah but get educated and then okay how about after that well they, and and uh, I, and at uh, what cost of course well so uh, so I, I wouldn't think of cost I would think that, that there are what shifts would would be necessary um, there are only costs if you think you're losing something mm. um, so well, the, I could I could imagine losing quite a bit if, if shifting from clock time to event time for example not, not necessarily losing more than what is gained that I certainly couldn't say for sure but things are always traded off right well I would um, I think Montessori schools and schools of that type already do work mm. on event time. So there are schools that do it. It's not uh, unheard of. And I, I, I would have to go to more schools internationally to see how they're, how they're operated. Mm. But um, I think that this sort of work has to start with listening. And so it, my, if I were to, re, you know, reform or whatever word you want to use, um, introduce shifts, they would not begin with an idea I had, but with my convening of groups who could educate me more. Because, okay, if you don't like this, what else could we do? And those, those would be whoever was interested in participating in the discussion. Now, I imagine there'd also be blowback from people. As I said, schools tend to attract and retain people who buy into the way they did school themselves as students. That's, that's been, um, that seems pretty clear. I go, and Dan Lordy found that in the 60s and 70s. I don't think it's any less true now. And, so there would probably be pushback from the people who were invested in schooling as it's now conducted, and those mm -hmm. would include teachers, but not all of them. But I think it's also important to ask people who don't go into teaching, because there might be, yeah, they they're the ones who are going to warp that perspective. And this kind of warping I find very useful in getting me to think, at least for me personally, getting me to think. Um, to, to take different perspectives on things that I have assumptions about. So everybody who's gone to school under clock time, well, how else would you run a school? And it's sort of like um, age or, or uh, you know, they have multi-age classrooms, but they're different, and those might have eight-year-olds to 12-year-olds in them. Um, 
that that takes a lot of work to institute into a school because schools aren't built. They're built to have 12 year olds be in this grade and 10 year olds be in that grade. So again, what I would, anything I would do would just start by listening, come in, come in and tell me what you think. I, I can't, I can't uh, think of things that I can't imagine. And my imagination is stifled by my socialization. Mm. So I need to find a way to step outside that. Um, just, uh, and, and that's what I do intellectually. I read almost nothing published in my own field. Most of my reading is out of field because that's where my thinking gets warped. And that's what I find most useful. So I, I haven't read much of what most people I know have written because I'm off, I've got a book over here on um, uh, evolutionary psychology that has some really interesting stuff about the role of, of how emotions have sustained societies over time. Mm. Uh, you don't find that reading about people teaching English. Uh, you have to go outside to find it and it, it makes me think uh, more broadly about what's possible. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, which, what's the name of the book, by the way? I'm just curious. Uh, this one. I like a lot of that stuff. It's That's not new. It's Thinking Through Cultures. Well, this one's Expeditions in Cultural Psychology. This is, um, this is actually a different book, although it has a, a really useful chapter. I'm, I'm interested very much these days in the role of emotions and in mm. cognition. Uh, where's it? Oh, here's it. Oh, that's another cultural psychology book. Well, oh. So here are two that I've been reading. I hope you got to see me in my, my beautiful clothing here. You always, you always dress up. I appreciate that. Always dress up. So here's this, whatever. I got it. To read it. Mm -hmm. It's actually in reverse to me as I look at it. I'm seeing myself backwards, and then there's this one. Okay, yeah. So these aren't particularly new, but they're compelling. And uh, I've, I've learned a lot. As I said, I, this is, I'm much more likely to read this than anything in a journal that I'm associated with, that I submit my own work to. Yeah. I think, I think you might have started to answer my second question okay. in the past couple of minutes. And uh, before, before I ask that, I would, I'd be interested in hearing from uh, some of Penny's uh, friends, relatives, uh, uncles. Maybe she, maybe she has a conservative uncle. And I would love to hear his, his point of view on her story. I, I imagine she probably has a more radical uncle, but that's a different uh, story. Yeah, I'd like to hear from him as well. So my, my second question, and I think this is going to be the main question, is, uh, well, let me, let me show you this. It's relevant. Back to my slideshow. Okay, so these are the books. Yeah. <laughs> these are some of the awards. These are, these are some of the articles that I've gained a great deal from. Oh, good. These are 
some of your public essays, okay, writing in newspapers, uh, maybe even doing videos like this, more public scholarship, mm -hmm. <laughs> meant for people who will actually read it, and all these topics. These are all sorts of researches you've collected. I mean, yeah, resources. This is, this is from my service learning class. Excellent. Okay. Um, the amount of the amount of accessible material you have for any student, any student teacher, anybody who's thinking of being a student, mm -hmm. just stuff, resources. Okay, so this is my way of saying, you've got a lot of knowledge, you've got a lot of history, you've been around the block, and, and you also read widely, like outside of your field, the fields. And uh, so the tough question I'm gonna ask you is, uh, now that you're or maybe a halfway into your career or so, what, if I got to teach on 300. <laughs> what are a, can you share like four or five uh, insights, tips, tricks, approaches, perspectives, uh, principles? They could be miniature lessons. They could be big, broad principles. Four or five, like, like just of those types of things that are worth sharing or just Pedagogical, pedagogical. Principles. Yeah, I think I think related to the world of teaching, be it be it teaching English or education broadly. You know, maybe training teachers. Really, whatever you're comfortable with. And and, and uh, I think what one thing that you were just saying was like reading widely outside of your narrow field is, I think, one thing that makes some of your work really interesting. But, well, thank you. But, but please, I mean, you just a handful. I'm, this must be hard for you to pick from, but go for it. Well, so I, I think that all teaching is local. Mm. Uh, I, I, you know, even people in the same school who try to borrow each other's lesson plans don't always, it, it's awkward. Yeah. Uh, I think um, you have to pay attention to who's in front of you first and foremost. Uh, this idea that somebody, I, I've written against the idea of best practices on several occasions and some of my, the closest people to me in my life and in my work disagree with me on that. They think there are better and worse teams. George Hillix mm -hmm. was convinced that there was a, a best way to teach writing and then he found it. Um, but then nobody does it. So mm. uh, I, I meet very few people. Who's, who are you talking about here? You know, of course he's dead now and that kind of cuts away at your influence. But um, I, I always, I'm concerned about the idea that there are best practices. Uh, I'll give an example of a, a teaching method I used to use with, uh, I believe, freshmen or sophomores in high school. It's, it's a very simple thing called sentence combining, mm -hmm. which is designed to help kids um, expand their syntactic maturity. Uh, in other words, you are given clauses and phrases and combine them into sentences. And actually, one of the best benefits of that, I think, is that they learn punctuation. But there was a meta-analysis by uh, Graham and Perrin that came out that got a lot of attention about a decade ago. And one of their findings was that in their meta-analysis of pedagogy for teaching writing, sentence combining is one of the things that we should do more. And I thought, I did sentence combining, but I, I did it at a level. I would never do that with juniors. 
I would only do that with the, you know, the younger kids who's, who really need that syntactic uh, work. And so it just, and, and also sentence combining for how long? Do you do it for three months? Do you do it for a little at a time, you know, spread out? There's no, just the idea that sentence combining is a best practice because it did well when people studied sentence combining doesn't mean that everybody should go out and do it. Uh, I think there's a time and place for it. I do think it's good pedagogy when used selectively. So I, I always think of these things as local. Um, I can tell you one of the one of the most beloved things I ever did as a teacher with my students, and they would tell me, you know, you know, like I'd get kids back. Uh, I, I'd teach them as freshmen, they'd come back to my class, I'd have them again as juniors, and they'd say, hey, hey Mr. Smag, are we going to do those vocabulary games again? I mean, it was a couple years later. They mm -hmm. really loved these things, and all I did was I took, um, I had, I knew that people like to play games. Mm -hmm. I knew that one effective way of teaching vocabulary was to focus on roots and aff affixes so that it's generative. And I knew that teaching people how to read contexts in was also an effective vocabulary builder. And I put those, I combined those and I made up, I, I would like take a game like Jeopardy and I'd make a competitive game out of it conducted in groups and they had to, but the items were all trying to figure out what words mean based on their components their roots and affixes, and how they would appear contextually in sentences. And that was the competition. And it was one of the most popular things I've ever done. <laughs> we sent it to, I sent a, a book manuscript based on this to NCTE, and they hated it because it was competitive. And they said, oh. well, if, some, if they're competing, that means someone loses. And that means bad. And I thought, well, why do they like it so much then? Brutal. Why do they like it? Why is gaming so popular if losing is a reason not to do something? Um, but that's, em I, I, that's embarrassing. I'm sorry. But. Well, but also, the, I've, I've shared these games with tons of people. I don't know many people who've done them. They worked great when I was the game host. And I created the time in my own curriculum to play them. And it didn't catch on. Mm -hmm. So it was a great practice for me. It doesn't seem to be a best practice that everybody uses. In fact, I don't know anybody who uses it. And I still got the games on my website. They're, mm. they're, they're available for free at my website with all the, all the materials you need. Yeah, I'll add um, the links to this. Okay. Um, you know, I'm thinking maybe somewhere, maybe somewhere uh, some third space that combines clock time and event time can be game time. Well, I really think well, I, it feels, I it feels like there. it's got a lot of potential there. Well, but I wouldn't call it a third space. Uh, and actually, I've just written. I've oh, got I, I, I didn't mean to use that in, in any technical sense. Oh, okay. Uh, well, it's it's a commonly misused notion, and um, oh, okay, I'm trying to get it back. It's actually a very kind of heretical, uh, revolutionary, uh, uh, resistant idea. Huh. But it's been co-opted to mean oh, let the kids listen to their own music or something mm. like that. And that's not, that's not what it is. 
So I mean, you could, but I think that hybrid space describes that exact uh, very well. Yeah, I think that's better. Yeah. And so the I would say that these are hybrid spaces, but third spaces are conducted out of resistance to oppression. Oh, okay. And the I, you know, I don't think they nobody that I could see felt oppressed and and resisted these games. They wanted to play them. They, it was really something they looked forward to, and that I did too because I enjoyed the the role. And they actually, I think they learned vocabulary pretty well. Uh, you know, of course, I haven't done these in a long time with kids. I used to mm -hmm. use them with my master's students. Is there a certain principle that we can uh, name the past five minutes of conversation with? Like, or is it just that happened to be one type of game that worked? Or was there a, a, a system that you kind of used in designing this game? Well, let's see. I tried, I, I, you know, a lot of ideas are born of, of many failures. And so mm -hmm. when I started teaching vocab, when I started teaching, I would, look ahead to the reading and if um don't ask me why i remember this one but in uh something thomas jefferson wrote that was in the curriculum that we had to, it must have been the something about the declaration or you know the one of these founding documents and he the word pusillanimous came up um which means cowardly and so i would i would go through and i'd find words like pusillanimous and those would be the vocabulary words for the week mm. because supposedly they would be linked to their reading, but they didn't connect it. it just, that, was a, that was a flop, um, which is, and it's actually a very common way of teaching vocabulary. That's also probably why I use it, it was in the air. Probably someone had done that with me, mm -hmm. even though I hadn't learned the words. And so then, okay, well, I still want to teach. I still think it's important to teach vocabulary. Let me see. Uh, and then I began my graduate program at the University of Chicago, and I was in the information processing uh, paradigm at the time. And the notion of iconic memory was something that I thought was very interesting, which is how you remember things by associating them with images. Mm. And so what I I said, okay, I'm going to apply this. We're gonna, I'll, we'll have these vocabulary words, and I can't remember where I got them from. And kids will get in groups and they'll perform the word for the rest of the class. And that will be, a, you know, this promote an iconic memory of the words usage and meaning. And that worked a lot better, but it only taught them what that word meant, which was not good enough for what I was trying to be as a teacher. I wanted everything I learned is to the greatest extent possible to be generative. Because I'm a time person, if I memorize something a week later, I can't remember what it was. Whereas, you know, the idea of a generative curriculum means that you're, you know, it's metacognitive. You're learning how to learn. Metacognition was uh, a, a central component of, uh, of the information processing. I'm sure it still is. And so I wanted metacognitive instruction. And so I thought that the roots and affixes and context clues approach from what I could from all the vo vocabulary reading I was doing those were things that taught people how to learn words it's not foolproof because you might invoke the wrong language's root but it's at least it tells you how a word is assembled mm. 
and it gives you a lot of, uh, and you're using, you're frequently using a lot of affixes, and you're frequently using a lot of roots. And then the game part, I, I honestly can't remember it because it was so long ago that mm. it was at least 35, 40 years ago that I picked this up. That was the, the best solution I ever came up with to teaching vocabulary. I guess the principles would be that the learning was metacognitive, at least I hope. The activities were social and enjoyable so that vocabulary wasn't something they groaned about but had fun with. Mm. Um, and in wordplay, I've always had fun with words, and so I tried to make words fun to my students. Uh, you'd, and you'd have to ask them whether a year later they were still able to use those tools to figure out words they'd never seen before. So I guess those would be the principles. Um, it, the, I think it helps if you like what you learn. Yeah. And But although using the term fun suggests a lightness, when this was actually very serious work, mm -hmm. building a vocabulary is a very serious piece of work. Um, Com competitive fun tends to do that. Competitive fun, which I learned then was bad. Com competitive fun that aims to build the how is, is what I'm hearing. Bad. So. <laughs> but they're, they're learning, you're learning how through the process of competitive fun so that hopefully right. you can uh, continue howing it as you go. Mm -hmm. How about, um, and by the way, feel free to, sh to share uh, uh, work that's not your own if you want, but. but uh, I know my own best. Yeah, yeah. So, if well, people, and so here's, if people here's, if people were to get a handful of things from you, you know, from the source, what else? Wait, say that again, please. If people were to walk away with just a handful of insights or tips or principles from the source from you. What else would you want people to to chew on? Well, one of the things that's been consistent is the need to listen to people, mm. and. Pay attention to how your students are experiencing your class. Um, I think it helped build relationships, which I believe are very important. It allows a teacher to be more than a, uh, you know, I, a different side of my personality came out during these vocabulary games. And uh, one that I enjoyed, and I think that the kids, kids don't like it if you're just kind of a big stiff up in front of the class. Uh, they like a human being. Um, so I, I, I do think that it's important to have education that's generative. Uh, right now I'm working on a book with someone that, that actually started out as one of those public essays and um, a book editor uh, asked us to develop a book out of it. And it's really about teaching in these times. It's summer, it's really a summer of 2020 inspired book because the argument I made in the um, in the essay was that um, there's a lot of concern now that with online learning that there'll be learning gaps you probably heard this oh people are falling behind in their learning and I'm thinking learning what what are they, what exactly are they falling behind in they tend to forget most of the stuff that gets taught in school there's you know what exactly are they falling behind in and if we go back in the fall, 
with the idea that we're going to try to catch them up, there you're going to miss the point because there's these times. This summer has been an occasion for a tremendous amount of learning. Even while the kids have been at home, they've been engaging with the, the issues that are going to frame their outlook for for many decades between the the protest movement and the the virus crisis. And they're both these are both historic and they're simultaneous. And you know what I said in the essay was if we go back to school and just do the same old stuff, this is a this is a teachable moment. We need to make school more responsive to that. Because the if, you know the curriculum was written by somebody else out there, uh, often a while ago, and it doesn't speak to what everybody wants to deal with, which is these social issues. And so the book is really about um, how can we uh, how can we make school a real experience? And you know, if you if you know anything about what any of George Hillox's students have done instructionally, it's all uh, it's process oriented. It's tied to kids' interests. It's um, very social. And so uh, I've written a couple of chapters. One is on how how to use critical inquiries, critical pedagogy, how to actually conduct a critical inquiry into a social inequity. Um, I've got a chapter on that, and it's based on stuff I've been doing. Uh, for a couple of years, actually based on uh, something that Stephanie Jones wrote for wrote about 15 years ago. I think it was her dissertation. Uh, but she, she lays out a nice, simple kind of, um, I wouldn't reduce it to a formula, but a, a, a set of a strategic approach to conducting a critical inquiry. I think that's a really useful thing to know how to do right now. Much more important than knowing how to diagram a sentence. Um, I've just finished a chapter on empathy and how to promote empathic thinking. And that's something that I don't do naturally. I don't believe I've ever been able to feel someone else's feelings in my life. And it's partly an autism, an autism trait. And, um, but what I've, what I've realized over the course of my life is that empathy is a good thing. I can't, I don't have a, any capacity for it myself but I see how important it is to at least act empathically and to try to put yourself in someone else's shoes. Uh, so if you can't do it naturally, you can actually strategically think, all right, how is this person experiencing things? You know, it mm -hmm. requires imagination, but it also knowledge and, and the willingness to listen. Yeah, there's, there's, a lot, there's a lot going on with empathy and uh, it certainly does require a lot of different components. Uh, yeah. I personally fall a little more probably in line with what Paul Bloom might say, um, which is empathy is good, but it has it has its dark side, and compassion might be possibly a better trait. Um, I think when empathy has an outsized role in decision making, um, it can often lead to unintended consequences, which is not at all to say it, it will or it always does, but I think when I think empathy has its place. Well, That's my personal. The, absence of, the absence of empathy can produce lots of problems. Yes, absolutely, hundred uh, percent. Ha empathy has to have a seat at the table for sure, hundred percent. 
Uh, there is a problem if it's not, if it's not, but if it's, it's just my, this is my orientation toward the world. If it's, yeah. if it's in charge of the decision-making, that's, that's rough. Well, but if, if, if it's not practiced at all, this is really, how can we get it? How can we start this process? And actually one of the questions I have is what are the risks or the perceived risks of being empathic, which it can alienate you from your own social group. If you're, like if you're a Trumper who starts to be empathic toward immigrants, mm. you will you will alienate yourself from the people that you are that you're saying that you represent. So I thought there are there are personal risks to to listening to and trying to understand how other people experience the world. Yeah, and and this is all this is all my way of saying uh, uh, in, in any sort of inquiry in any sort of inquiry process, I, it's really important, I think, for the for the teacher or for the inquirers to ask what if it is otherwise type questions. Mm -hmm. Like like that's just crucial, I think. So and just so the, the third, uh, my, my, my co-author is Alison Skerritt, who's Caribbean American, uh, Afro-Caribbean, and she's interested in transnationalism. Her, her chapters will be, will, uh, look at that, um, racial literacy, things like that. Uh, the, the third chapter I'm going to write is um, an extended definition on what patriotism is. You hear it invoked all the time. It's patriotic to be, uh, to uphold the law. It's patriotic to question the law, who's a patriot, who's not. Uh, I think that that's a really interesting question to ask anytime, but it's really important now because it's being used every day justify uh, the uh, ill treatment of other people. So um, I think I think wearing a mask is patriotic. Oh man. Yeah. Well, I just read in the paper a kid who said only liberals can get the Rona. <laughs> um, yeah. No masks, Trump 2020. It's a kid in the town next, the next town over. Yeah, and one, yeah. of, one of the adults in the community just said, I believe in science, and if the science says kids can't get coronavirus, and so let's send them all back to school. Yeah, have you heard of the term uh, nut picking? Not nut picking, nut picking. Yeah, nut picking is basically picking out uh, a nutty, a nutty member of some group and holding them up as sort of... Uh, oh, this, of this, but this county... Um, voted 80% for Trump yeah. in, in 2016. So he's a down the fairway representative of that town, that entire town. Got it. Well, if it makes you feel any better, all, all, of, my, uh, all of my Trump voting friends wear masks, but except for one, except for one, and he's kind of a... <laughs> but he's your friend. <laughs> Listen, friend is friend. I know, by the way, I... I, I'm friend not, is friend, you know. Fr friend is deeper than uh, friend is deeper than nonsense. Yeah. I guess. And so I I know a number of people who don't vote the way I do, although it's harder and harder to have a reasonable conversation when people think that only liberals get a virus that really doesn't care who you are. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there are idiots out there. That's for sure. Yeah, and reasonable conversation is, uh, uh, unfortunately, it's getting harder to have. Yep. 
and and yeah so do you have any any tips for reasonable would, would reasonable conversation crack your top five of things to share or not so well again i think a lot of it goes back to the willingness to listen and not talk uh to enter conversations um with a mm -hmm. disposition to be persuaded or uh, and it's not just persuasion which is usually thought of as a strictly rational uh, process, which I don't think it is, but to understand how people feel and why they feel that way. And that's part of listening. Uh, I don't think we're going to get anywhere if we don't do that. Yeah, I, As teachers, I think that uh, especially listening to kids whose socialization is different from your own uh, is really important. Yeah, that's well said. And uh, I think it's pretty well established and you've written a bit about this as well. Uh, you, you've written about uh, Jonathan Haidt's work and mm -hmm. I think a couple others along the same line where sometimes persuasion is really a matter of going through the heart before getting to the head. And, uh, and sometimes detouring, once you get into the heart, you realize the, the pathway to the head that you were trying to establish is uh, not, not as straightforward as you thought, like you might change your own. Right. And you might change your own position, your own argument. That might actually be in the same place. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, no. Yeah. Good point. Um, you, you've edited quite a few mm -hmm. journals and for quite a long time. So you've read quite, you know, you've read as much about the field of education as anybody that I've spoken to. Uh, do, do a lot of ideas come and go? Like, do they have their heyday and then they sort of don't stand the test of time? And are, are there any, any that have really stood the test of time? I want to answer that in a slightly different way sure. because I think it's kind of amusing hmm. the way things get discredited and then return under a new name. Hmm. So um, when I was getting into the business, George Hillis was very big on teaching us educational objectives uh, in uh, Benjamin Bloom who was his colleague at Chicago. And at the same time, there was this huge movement against educational objectives as being rigid, lockstep, blah, 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 and horrible and oppressive and hegemonic. And it wasn't long before educational outcomes popped up. And they, in fact, they were, it was kind of on the heels of the dismissal of educational objectives that educational outcomes popped up but those were kind of about the kind of person you wanted to emerge from instruction and uh, i was living in oklahoma at the time that wasn't welcome because they didn't want some 25 year old teacher without kids deciding what kind of person their kid was going to be and often they came from very um, conservative christian backgrounds that that wanted to um, keep things as they were. That's you know they, that that is a that is a cultural value that we we don't want you getting in my kid's head and teaching them all these things. And you know they're the parents. They I I, I would try always try to be respectful of how people want to raise their own kids. I, that's not to say that I like it when people raise their kids to be Nazis and things like that. But it's not my call. 
uh, I can try to discourage it in other ways, creating a, a different kind of whole environment. Mm. So that got educational outcomes came in and out, but they were all about kind of what are you, what are you leading this towards? Now, educational objectives, in my view, are back wholesale as backwards planning. That's what it is. You figure out what you're going to do at the end first, and you teach toward it. So, you know, ideas come and go, but they often resurface. So when I got into the business, model essays were, were verboten. Even they, they, were the, they were probably the most common way of teaching writing through 1970 or so. Uh, I got my teaching credentials in the mid to late 70s. And... Um, uh, oh, so. oh, oh, and... Um, Model essays were George Hillix was was finding model essays are terrible, uh, blah 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 blah. But most of us who would say, oh, you shouldn't use model essays. If we were doing some new kind of writing, the first thing we do is go read some. Um, so when I start, first started to write grant proposals, I didn't I didn't do it without looking at grant proposals. I wrote my friends who'd been funded and said, hey, can you send me one? I need to know what the, is in these things. Yeah. So I was using models while I was preaching against them. And now, what does every teacher talk about? Mentor texts. They're models. So uh, I think it's interesting how ideas go in and out of fashion and then return in more or less the same form with a new name. Mm. Yeah, so that, and that's, that'll be my contribution to that one. Yeah. <laughs> And you've 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 been on the scene enough where you've seen that you know you, you could oh, see that thing happening. That's right. What uh, is there anything? This could be an idea of yours, or even a, a principle or perspective of yours, or not. Anything that sort of never quite uh, achieved the status that it probably should have, or or has fallen out of status, unfortunately. Are you talking about in general or from my in general? Yeah. Okay. General. Uh, I think that the whole idea of constructivism is out of policy fashion. You, it's all tests, numbers, everybody's reduced, kids are reduced to numbers, teachers are reduced to numbers. Uh, it's it's, um, it's a, not a very stimulating environment. So I would say constructivism is alive and well in colleges of education. It's the dominant paradigm. But, and I don't know what teachers would do if there weren't policy mandates, if there weren't someone out there creating superstructures that, that narrow the scope of learning the way I think uh, is the case now. So, uh, is, yeah. Sorry, go ahead. I, I was going to say, what, what is constructivism? I think everybody has their idea, but what is constructivism? Uh, yeah, well, and there, there, there's probably more than one. Mm. Um, I, I would say it assumes the world is open-ended. Um, it assumes that um, that there's not one way to do anything or one thing to learn, but that there are that that the world is really advanced by thinking that's not bound 
to uh, historical ways of doing things or or fixed knowledge. Um, it, it, even things like history, it assumes that if you go back and look at it differently, it will sound different. And I've, I've read about uh, the U.S.-Mexico border from both the Mexican side and the U.S. side, mm. and there are different constructions of that reality. So it, it, it has to do with the kind of subjective, uh, possibly relativistic nature of things. Um, and people's and, and how people orchestrate with cultural mediation their impressions of the world into a knowledge base that works for them which is different from saying that um say columbus discovered america in 1492 i grew up with that as a truism there's not that's that's contested now turns out there were people here complicated yeah yeah so what is um it was really interest interesting thank you what what is constructivism in the classroom or what is constructivist teaching especially if you're suggesting it's, it's happening less now than maybe in the past well, I'd say the, the opposite of constructivism is a teacher lecturing on what a story means. The essence of constructivism is that students um, engage in, with a text, put it in relation to their personal knowledge and cultural knowledge, and generating meaning, making it meaningful, where they generate the meaning for the text rather than being told what the meaning is and having that meaning coming out of the lecture notes that someone got in college in 1980. You know, to me, and that's the way a lot of school is still conducted, that there are, that the story means something and the idea is to get them there. There, I do have some really nice data from the teachers I studied. One said, well, we have a constructivist thing, although I'm not sure what constructivism means because every professor has a different interpretation of constructivism so i'm a constructivist but i'm not sure what that is mm. and um you know uh, i'm supposed to do i'm a first grade teacher and am i do i have a constructivist way of having kids tie their shoes or is there a way to tie shoes that works pretty well that i should teach them mm. you know so that it yeah i'm a constructivist with limits because there's some stuff you know when you're eating you don't put the fork in the back of your head in the front Usually, uh, it yeah. works better that way so you know that where do you, but where do you draw the line that's i think part of the um, the ongoing discussion yeah you could you could see how this thing can fall out of favor when when people don't recognize that uh meaning making still has to have some sort of sense it uh, doesn't have to necessarily, but meaning making tends to be more productive when it's also sensible or maybe not even defensible, but, but explainable in some way. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, if, if, if these things are too idealistic, in my view, they can, they can be become laughable when, when in fact, what you're saying is really, you know, it's interesting. It's sort of complex. It's, yeah. sort of very lines up with a lot of reality fair amount of reality and uh 
it could become goofy and it could become sort of laughed at. Well, you and it's also hard to assess. Line. And this is where I think a lot of, you know, the, why creative writing isn't used that much in school. Well, what, how do I grade it? How do I know if it's any good? Um, and I, I've run into this with this idea of um, when, when I was doing uh, uh, work about interpreting literature through art, but most of the stuff that kids do is actually very sincere and and um, and compelling, and shows and actually shows you a side of the story that you might not have seen because they're finding they're finding meaning in it. At the same time, I've seen things like um, a teacher who uh, uh, who opened it up, and some kids brought it, baked a cake that had some elements of a story outline in it and they ate it and i thought hmm i didn't learn anything from that <laughs> and they probably didn't either except maybe about baking cakes yeah and the parents are flipping out because because before <laughs> because before covid they're like uh, i don't really know what's going on in school and now they're seeing uh yeah right cake baking lessons <laughs> in place of well, I, I'm sure I there was. I'm sure there was some learning going on. I'm, not, I'm sure that it's it's valuable to, to learn how to cook. Yeah, I know sure. a lot of uh, people could use that one, but yeah, I don't know that that enhanced the language arts lesson. Yeah, that's a little nut picking right there. That's like a, a bad example standing in for the whole. If if uh, oh man, we don't want to talk about this, but let's say the hurricane swept you away <laughs> forever. Yeah. Which, I, I hope that does not happen. Um, uh, it's not going to hit my Athens okay, good. four hours inland. We're not going to. All right, good. Is, th is there any sort of parting uh, education-based thoughts? Oh, really? If, if this <laughs> is the last time I ever speak to anyone? <laughs> yeah. Uh, keep an open mind. Keep uh, reading and listening. There you go. Fair enough. Is there... Any, um, I guess my first question was like, you know, four or five different things to chat about that you've learned over your uh -huh. really, I would say, illustrious career. And that's just my point of view. But I know others who also have illustrious careers that would agree with me. So is, is there anything you think sh should be said that we really haven't touched upon? I'm sure there is, but anything jumping in mind? Yeah. Um, uh, I'm kind of brain dead right now. Yeah, I think it's a hard question, actually. Yeah, it, I, we, I, we might need another hour on that one. <laughs> there might not be enough video space on Zoom for us to, to go there. Maybe we'll bookmark it. Do it.